You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 246, Why You Should Read a Car Thief. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, today we have a conversation uh, with someone that's a little different than we normally do. And yet I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation to discover more, aren't you? Oh, I can't wait. I am so glad to welcome Vicki Reed to our show. Uh, Vicki, after earning her bachelor's degree in law enforcement and master's degree in criminal justice, immersed herself in a successful decades-long career in juvenile justice. She's a sought-after speaker and is currently executive director of the Kentucky Juvenile Justice Initiative in Lexington, where she lives with her husband and son. And she's also an author of a book. Uh, Vicki, we're so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here, and I love the good work that you all do. Well, Vicki, we met at a conference for kids, and I knew right away we were kindred spirits. And you sent me your book, A Car Thief, and I read it in one weekend. And as I was reading it, and Dave, you probably have this feeling because you read so much, I kept thinking of people I wanted to read it too, because it so clearly illustrated a trauma-informed or an uninformed approach to communicating with young people. So my first question for you, Vicki, I mean, you're an expert in juvenile justice. Um, why did you write a fiction book? Well, I didn't start out to. <laughs> uh, actually, I didn't start out to write any book. <laughs> I wasn't one of those people that said, oh, I want to write a book someday. But I am a voracious reader. I love to read. And I wanted to read about juvenile justice. But when I looked, you know, I really couldn't find much out there, especially, you know, when it came to fiction, the things that were there were very much inaccurate. And if you're in the system, I guess it's like a, a doctor who's reading a book about medical stuff. And if you say they didn't sterilize the instruments or something, you'd be grimacing. So anyway, so I had uh, Tony Morrison, who you've probably heard of, a famous author, said mm. that if there's a book you want to read that's not out there, write it yourself. So oh. I decided I would write a nice little nonfiction and explain about how kids get in the system and who they are and how trauma is involved in that and so forth. And it really wasn't going well. And about three o'clock in the morning one night when I was trying to work on it, when I couldn't sleep, it morphed to fiction. And I felt much better I did, I with taking this hypothetical kid all through the system. And, and basically, Kelly, the, the kid in the story, he, he took over and he wrote the book from there. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Kelly and some of the other characters, but don't tell the ending. We don't want a spoiler in our podcast. We want people to get the book and read it themselves. So tell us about Kelly. Well, he starts off, uh, he's 12 years old, and uh, he has been involved in 
you know, he lived in Wyoming. Uh, he's had some trauma in his life. And I, I don't know that I want to, should I, should I tell what the trauma is? Yeah. Why don't you start off with telling what his trauma is? Okay. Well, I'll start off with saying that the book actually starts in the middle of an exciting part where he is coming out the window, running away. So it's, it's, uh, I tried to get people from the get go where they would immediately be captured into the story of the book of this kid popping out of a three-story window and almost falling to his death and so forth to, to get the excitement going. But he basically, his family was killed in a car wreck and he lived in Wyoming. He's a big nature lover and horse lover, which is something I am. So I, I incorporated that into the story as well and is shipped off to live with, a, with an abusive grandfather. And so basically he runs away and the, after that starts going through the system. And if you know anything about the system, probably what wherever you live, you know that when one domino gets turned over, the others kind of knock through. And, and that's what happens with these kids. One, one little ripple can just take them deeper and deeper. Uh, with juvenile justice, we like to say it's like there's plenty of on-ramps onto the highway, but not very many to get off. And so this just takes him through all his travels. And the other thing is, and you mentioned the other characters, are that the adults that come into his life along the way. So I think when the lights came on for me, he had been taken to a temporary placement. And the way that you write this, I can hear what people are saying to Kelly. And then I can also hear what Kelly is thinking about what they're saying. And it just rang so true and he had no power. He anticipated a lot of what would happen to him, and it happened to him. So he it reinforced his hopelessness. So tell us how you came up with the characters that were interacting with Kelly. Well, basically, this is the good thing about being old, because you have all these years of experience and all these places and people you've worked. And one of my prior jobs was I actually ran an emergency shelter and a group home for kids. I've worked in juvenile detention. I've been a probation officer. So I've sort of done it all. So a lot of the characters are, you know, sort of people I have met along the way. And I did make a real effort to balance in the book. And you can tell me whether I did a good job of this or not, the, the good and the bad. Because one of my complaints with a lot of the juvenile books you read is, oh, they're all corrupt guards and, you know, everybody's horrible. And I didn't want it to be that way. So, you know, I have like a good judge and a bad judge and a good foster parent and a bad foster parent because I wanted to show that it, it sort of really is a roll of the dice when you get in the system. Uh, you may get a great social worker to be on your case or one that doesn't care and is going home, you know, as soon as they can. A judge who loves kids and really tries to do the best and a judge who just wants to, like, you know, move on to the docket and doesn't really care. So, you know, I tried to bring all those different people in. And I think after working with these kids for so long that it wasn't hard in a way to write as a 14-year-old boy or a 13-year-old boy just because I've been around these kids so much. And I've also, you know, like I said, been around the adults, the, the people who work at emergency shelters and work in juvenile detention and, and lawyers. And I tried to bring all of those people into the system and, and make them human and natural. 
So one of the things that I noticed is that Kelly didn't explain why he did things. He didn't explain what happened and why he ran away from his grandfather. And that's kind of at the beginning of the book. So it's, there's not going to be a spoiler alert there. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what happened? Well, one, one of the things that uh, when I started doing the, the book, since I had never written fiction before, I immersed myself in all the how-to books and so forth. And one of the things they tell you is, you know, don't say everything about the characters up front, that you kind of dribble it in uh, in a natural way. So, you know, there isn't a whole lot of explaining. Uh, part of that is the, the fun of the reader discovering these little like peeling an onion, these little bits and parts. And really, that's how it should be in the system in a way, because um, we, we had this conversation before, you know, people asking kids very personal questions about their personal lives and expecting them to give this answer on things when, you know, how, how difficult that would be an adult will tell me about this horrible thing that happened to you over and over and over again. So that that was one of the things I wanted to make sure that I incorporated was how kids think about these things and how we adults perceive them. So tell us about grandpa. How did you decide that he would be a challenge in Kelly's life? Well, basically, I needed a reason for him to to take off, <laughs> to get into the system. So and that's so typical of kids that are in the system, you know, over half have been, you know, physically uh, abused or neglected, and even higher percentage, especially when you get to girls, have been sexually abused. Uh, I remember reading an article where they had gone in and a reporter was asking a, in a juvenile facility, well, what percent of the girls here have been sexually abused? And the director just looked at him and said, 100%, all of them have. So that that was basically, grandfather doesn't play a huge role, but he is the reason that that Kelly ends up being a runaway and gets into the system. So I'm in chapter six right now, and he has gone through intake at an emergency placement. And now we're thinking about his plan for surviving this. So here's what it says. My brief time of being a regular person is over. There go my shoes, and here comes my stupid points book. I cave and start writing the points down. I don't want them talking bad about me in court again. Besides, I figure out that being good makes you invisible. Now that I'm walking the line, the staff back off, and as they do, I begin to see opportunities to hit the road, even though I haven't solved the problem of rescuing my backpack. So he's already, I mean, he just got here and they take his shoes away because they don't want him to run. And he's already planning to run. How prevalent is that runner mentality? I think it's, you know, very prevalent. Uh, and it does. And it's pointed out one other time in the book, it becomes a hard habit to break after a while. And there is the thing of, you know, for some kids, when you're under a roof, there's the safety of uh, what we call the three hots and a cot. And if you don't have anything out there, but, you know, you really were starving to death, it might. But for so many of these kids, you know, the, the freedom of it being able to do what they want when they want to do it is just like us adults. I mean, when you go to a place, 
Would you want everybody telling you, would you want to ask when you have to use bathroom uh, and get permission to do it? Would you want to be able to open the, the door to go outside? And, and for group homes, that this is a very common thing. Even things like opening the refrigerator to get a drink, you have to ask permission. It's very structured and controlled. And it's for a reason, because a lot of these kids are difficult to deal with. But some of the rules become very much inhibiting, I think, for kids. And it's really hard to strike that balance between keeping kids safe and keeping them under the roof and having them so unhappy that they want to leave. So that that's one of the points that I tried to make. And the other thing that's interesting in this chapter, if you recall, is he meets a, another girl there that's his age. And there's some like romantic sparks flying between them. And then, you know, that's just a very brief thing. And she's gone out of his life. And, and that's the other thing that happens with these kids. You know, people don't stay. They know that's going to happen. People come in, they go. It could be another kid. It could be staff. So, you know, you, you begin not to invest yourself in somebody because, you know, they're not going to be a permanent fixture in your life. Oh, I was so excited when he got placed in a foster home where they were older and grandpa kind of style leadership took him to goodwill. The mom fixed food and wanted to know what he liked, but also made him eat stuff he didn't like. And then suddenly it's over. It's over. And how are kids 12, 13, 14 years old supposed to process that? Right. Again, that's very common. I mean, he knew when he went in there that this was just a short term placement you know, for up to 30 days till he went to court. And that's what it was going to be. And, and we see that with the shelters too. There's there's a terminology that, that we use. We call it the shelter shuffle. And it's where the shelters have a 30-day limit. And after that, you can't stay any longer. So what social workers will sometimes do is put the kid in shelter A for 30 days and then move them to shelter B for 30 days and then move them back to shelter A for 30 days. And we interviewed a kid not too long ago who had been in 64 prior placements. And so when we talk about kids being wary of adults, you think, well, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> I mean, would you trust people after all that? So uh, we really sometimes get a little blasé, I think, about the things we put kids through and, and the impact that those have on them, even, even good intention people. So that was one of the, again, one of the points I wanted to bring up in the book. So now then in the book, we start to meet other characters, people like Bonnie and Henry and Sam. Can you give us kind of an, a quick overview of what organizations, what agencies, I guess is the right word, those folks represent and why it's so important for us to understand that in our systems? Right. So when Henry comes in, he's the first adult that sort of steps up and becomes a, a, a real factor in, in Kelly's life. He is a attorney who used to represent juveniles, who's now moved up where he does adults primarily. So he gets, you know, he gets stuck with this kid's case. And the instant he sees him, he knows, oh, my gosh, because one of the points I make in the book is that we have these laws called mandatory transfers where no matter what the circumstances of a kid is, if he commits a certain offense, it's mandatory that they be tried as adults. And he meets Kelly for the first time, and I think this will be a spoiler alert, but one of my favorite lines was when the first time he, he meets Kelly, he's expecting this really tough, rough, hard kid that he's seen in the past. And he's, he looks at him and he says, oh my gosh, the, the traps, we set a, a trap for a tiger and we caught a kitten. 
Mm, I loved that too. I did. And, and this idea that this kid is now going to enter a system as an adult. So my background, pediatrics and developmental growth, the impact of trauma on development, all those things are a big part of how I look at our systems and how I try to bring the right people to the table to do prevention. And, and I kept thinking as I'm seeing how Kelly is figuring out how to survive getting a job at, at a racetrack. And of course, because you're in Kentucky, of course, there's probably lots of opportunity for that. But I kept thinking, oh my gosh, some trafficker is going to recruit him because he is so vulnerable. And then being placed in an adult system, what would happen if he goes to court and the judge doesn't have an experience with juveniles. And, and all of those what ifs came up. And I kept thinking, I would love to use this scenario in one of my classes for a discussion. And many times that as a teaching tool is an amazing gift. And I think you mentioned to me that there are universities that are starting to use this story as a way of teaching. Can you tell me how they're doing that? Yes, I'm very excited about that. And I'm hoping to, to really make an effort to get into to more of those. And it's, the funny thing was, is that I did not approach them. They approached me. And now that I understand how that works, I'm going to be approaching more of them in the future myself. But one, a, a social work professor at a university in Ohio contacted me and said, oh my gosh, I just read your book. I loved it. And I want to use it as mandatory reading with my class the next semester. So she's done that. And then it scheduled me for a Zoom meeting with her students in uh, April. And then meanwhile, I also got a uh, from California, a law school contacted me and said one of their professors wanted to use the book for their students. And it was funny, I was I was really so concentrating on, you know, more social workers and, and juvenile staff that I didn't really think as much about the, the, the attorneys, but that really does play a, a very prominent role. All the court processes that he goes through, the interactions, you know, we talk about emancipation, we talk about judicial release, what the, you know, all sorts of things, the mandatory laws. And then, as you mentioned, the impact of putting kids in adult systems where we know they're much more likely to be sexually abused and have those sort of horrible things happen to them. So having that sort of character in there and then, you know, Sam being a uh, correctional officer with the adult system. So you have that that person in there, too. And, and Bonnie, who works for uh, also for adult corrections as a sort of like a probation officer type of, of job. So, you know, we hit a lot of different people and, and a lot of different universities who teach that sort of thing. I know in Canada they are, you know, much bigger on community colleges and have a lot of two-year degrees for youth work. And so I'm hoping maybe that, um, I know some other folks have done some stuff in Canada. So I'm hoping to get up there too. So Bonnie was one of my favorite characters. <laughs> and of course, Sam, I loved hearing it from a female perspective, as well as from a male leadership perspective and how they saw this young kid. But your years of experience in working with these kids, you actually were able to integrate some sense of self-respect, self 
value, empowerment. One of my favorite, favorite parts where you demonstrated that is when Sam takes him shopping to buy him some clothes because the kid doesn't have anything. Kelly takes over the shopping experience and takes Sam to Goodwill and teaches him how to shop the way he knows how to shop. And that was so empowering and such a great example of giving kids some option for self-efficacy. And I don't want to use terminology from the field, but it's, it's really hard not to. And those are such important keys. And we, we didactically teach that in the classroom. And then you show us what that actually looks like. How did you arrive at that? Did you have an experience with kids in that area? One, one of the things that we know is that the kids need choices. And kids that are in especially correctional facilities or any other type of placement like that get so few. I do a lot of, uh, before COVID shut it down, I went into our local juvenile detention center and did art with the kids once a week. And we tried to always incorporate a ton of decisions purposefully. Do you want the red paper or the blue paper? Do you want to use crayons or do you want to use markers? No matter how small the decision with these kids, because they're told you sit here, you stand here, you'll get up here. I mean, they get so little choices. Interestingly, Colorado, I read, is trying to upgrade and make their detention centers more trauma-informed. And they're painting the walls in more soothing colors. They're taking out some of those, you know, metal tables and chairs bolted to the floor and putting in the soft modular furniture. But one of the things they did was allow kids to make a choice of a color bedding instead of just, you know, everybody gets green or brown. It's like, do you want the blue? Do you want the green? Do you want the whatever? And they found that the vandalism of the bedding and the kids cell went way down simply because they gave them some choice about their living arrangements. So that's very known in juvenile justice to try to give kids those choices so it's a much more natural sort of thing for people to choose what they want, not always just have a set in front of them. So your book actually just oozes with hope for the future in the system. It does. And I have the sense that somehow you are one of those characters. Which character represents your voice? The oh, most? that's so funny. You're asking me that. I've been asked that, sir. I'm doing a lot of book clubs. And by the way, if anybody wants me to do a book club, I love doing them. It's, they're so fun. But I get asked that all the time. Which character am I? And I always tell them I'm, I'm sort of really a uh, morphing of Bonnie and Kelly. There's, you know, maybe maybe teensy bit of Kelly or of uh, Henry and Sam, but you know, they're they're big guy guy guys kind of thing. So I'm not not as much with that. But uh, I, I tend to be funny sometimes. I like the thing. So Bonnie is funny. And, and that is one of the things I did try to do with the book. I didn't want it to be this model and depressing, oh, where, you know, people are like, I don't want to read this. And I did try to put a lot of humor, which I think I did, because when I look at my Amazon reviews, people will talk about how much they laughed with some of the stuff. And then the Kelly part to me, the other aspects of the book are horses and nature. And that's all me. I ride, I have horses. Uh, I think horses are great for kids. And I think nature is very healing for everybody who's been through trauma. And so I was able to, to have Kelly have those parts of, of my personality and, the, and probably some of the daydreaming too, because that's the other 
aspect. Kelly's a big daydreamer, and I was always that way too. But uh, you don't know necessarily what somebody's thinking. <laughs> they may have a whole different perspective from what they're saying, what their internal mind is telling them. So, without giving away the ending, I want to talk about how it must have felt for Bonnie and Sam and Henry when Kelly runs again. And you maintained the integrity of your story by not fixing it for this kid so that he wouldn't wouldn't do what he's done most of his life being in the system. And I'm curious how you see what you wrote as a road for change, because there's so much hope in it. Can you talk about your hope? I can. And I'll also mention that as far as Kelly and and what happens, you know, I wanted that to be more realistic because, uh, you know, this idea that, oh, all of a sudden we put a kid in a good situation now and all the trauma they've had doesn't count anymore. Everything's fine. Angels sing, birds chirp. It doesn't really work out that way. These kids have trauma and it's going to it's going to come back and bite them now and then, and it's going to influence their behavior. And we shouldn't be too shocked and appalled when that happens. We kind of need to be ready for those sorts of relapses. But I do have hope because uh, this is, again, a good thing about being older. Sometimes when I was in my 20s and 30s and dealt with these kids and I, they would have these what we call reversals and so forth, I, I would get a little disheartened. But when you get older, you suddenly realize how many of these kids still prevail I'll be out and about at McDonald's and some kid that I had on my probation caseload comes up to me. Are you so-and-so? And, you know, they're introducing me to their kids and they've got a job. And for some of these kids, I didn't think they were going to make it. And I, I see now that they are. I think my other hope is that even though there's still some bad things that go on the system, we are starting to realize what's going on. I mean, you, you do, you hear trauma-informed care with lots of things now, but it really is being taught into juvenile justice and we are making decisions and looking more now at these kids from a trauma-informed lens. And I, I'm very hopeful about that. The, the number of kids in placement right now is historically low. And this was even pre-COVID and now with COVID, they're they're even lower. And it's like, we're finally starting to get it. Now we need to do more because we still, a lot of states have these, and probably countries and so forth too have you know big juvenile prisons or places that are you know where punitive in nature. So we still we still have our work to be done. But more and more people get it that we need small treatment oriented facilities. We need to to give these kids choices and 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 come at them and understand the trauma they've been and and let them take the lead sometimes on it, not just tell them what they need to be doing. So, so I am hopeful that we are seeing changes. There's been a ton of juvenile facilities have closed nationwide. And then that time when we were trying all kids as adults in the last, I think it's been three or four years, over 100 laws have been changed across the United States and various states to roll back all that. Let's throw kids into adult jail. So I am hopeful that both the system, uh, that we are finally learning some things and doing better. Wow, that is a great overview of changes that are growing our, our, our understanding and great examples of what it means to be trauma-informed. I want to recommend that you get a copy of A Car Thief, read it, read it with a group. We'll put a link so that you can connect 
with Vicki if you want to do a book club. And I hope to hear some great stories about the actions that people have taken in their own community as a response. Vicki, I think you combined your imagination and a lot of perspiration and experience to create an amazing story that teaches and will produce amazing change everywhere. So I want to thank you so much for taking the leap to become an author. Well, thank you very much. And I I will mention it is The Car Thief and that there, if they look on Amazon, there are two of them. There was actually a book called The Car Thief that was written in the 1960s by Theodore Wiesner. And uh, it is actually a very good book. I also recommend it, but uh, get mine first. <laughs> uh, and I'm sorry, I, I, I wrote it down, A Car Thief, but it is The Car Thief. And you read about Kelly Morgan. And I'm looking forward to see where this goes. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I just love to talk about my book. And so this has been great fun. And I look forward to hearing from anybody. I do have a uh, author website at The Read Author. I think you mentioned you'd probably put that there. But please feel anybody, feel free to uh, email me and I'd love to talk to you. Well, thank you so much both for this conversation. I'm excited to read The Car Thief now and uh, and to dive in on this. Vicki, thank you so much for your work. We are inviting you to take the first step as well. If you hop online, you can download a copy of Sandy's book, a free copy, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. Boy, what a good compliment that will be to The Car Thief in really giving you the critical things that Sandy's identified in her work that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. You can get access to that at endinghumantrafficking.org. That's where we'll also have the links to Vicki's book and everything we've mentioned in today's episode. In addition, when you're online at endinghumantrafficking.org, take a moment to find out about the Anti-Human Trafficking Certificate Program, a program that is available uh, through Vanguard University here that will help you to really understand the depths of so many of the complexities of this, this challenging issue so that you can work with us to end human trafficking. EndingHumanTrafficking.org is the place to go for all of that. We will be back with you for our next conversation in two weeks. Sandy, always a pleasure. Thanks, and uh, see you in two weeks. All right. Take care, everybody. 